This is Blaze Brosnan for MIR Meets, a podcast where we meet with experts to discuss a variety of domestic and international political issues. Today we'll be speaking with David Shore. Shore is a data scientist who's uh, playing a crucial role in reshaping uh, perspectives on democratic strategy for future elections and such. So he um, was close to the top of Obama's uh, uh, data analysis sort of machine in the 2012 uh, election at the age of 21. Um, he's been influential ever since in democratic circles. So uh, I guess we'll start start off with the basics. So if I have it right, um, your uh, approach is basically, you know, it's pretty simple. Democrats should focus on popular issues among the public, not issues that are popular among elite, uh, you know, kind of democratic policy uh, bases or highly educated voters. Um, can you explain that theory in a little more detail? And that's kind of the TLDR, but. I mean, I, 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 think, you, I think you described it uh, pretty well. I think that in, in politics, uh, there's been kind of an overcorrection. I think a lot of people uh, have convinced themselves that issues don't matter, that policy doesn't matter, um, that there are no more swing voters. You know, there are a lot of concepts that you hear a lot you know, uh, when you hear people talking talking about politics. And I think, you know, the main message I'm trying to send is that actually a lot of these assumptions that get thrown around, which I think became popular um, due to, you know, both methodological errors and ideological convenience, um, you know, aren't true. And actually a lot of the old rules um, that political experts thought existed in the 90s and the 2000s are still there. It turns out that Moderate politicians, even if I'm very left-wing, do do better. It turns out that issue congruence, that how much politicians agree with voters actually has a real impact. It turns out that, you know, Donald Trump in 20, that uh, Donald Trump in 2016 largely won because a bunch of people uh, changed their minds um, from Obama to Trump. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that those people were the people who agreed with us on healthcare and disagreed with us on immigration. And it turns out in general, you know, that wasn't unique, that roughly 80% of the change um, from election to election. This was true 2012 to 2016, 20, you know, 16 to 2018, 2016 to 2020, is attributable to people changing their minds and not to changes in uh, vote share. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of other um, points that I like to make, but I, I, I do think that's, that that captures a lot of the central, uh, central theme. Your broad take on 2016, I actually found probably one of the most interesting aspects of, of your work. I mean, your argument is essentially... Um, the Clinton campaign, uh, through a mix of uh, ideological bias and uh, faulty polling, decided to target messaging to uh, cosmopolitan-minded voters um, while forsaking uh, the traditional working-class base that had ironically propelled the Clintons to the White House and also uh, Hillary Clinton's support in 2008 primaries. Um, and so, um, I mean, that's... A, that's uh, uh, that's a very, that's a very interesting argument, but yeah, if we remember 2016, it was all you know the Clinton uh, campaign really focused on how Trump is sexist and racist and all that, and Clinton isn't any of these those things. So, can you say a little more about those uh, the errors you think uh, Clinton made that ultimately led to Trump winning the White House? Yeah, you know, I I I like to say uh, that 2016 was actually an incredibly normal election. And an issue and, and an election that was determined by a kind of ideology and by issue taking. And I think it's really interesting. Very educated people, the most educated people, um, are kind of blinded to this um, exactly because they're kind of so 
so weird and unrepresentative. But if you actually go and you ask voters to ideologically place people, you know, Donald Trump was the most moderate Republican to run for president in decades, um, just in terms of if you ask voters how they perceive things. Voters perceived Donald Trump to ideologically be a lot closer to them than they did Hillary Clinton. Um, and more, more than that, uh, Donald Trump in the primary, uh, in the Republican primary, I think, you know, a lot of liberals have a lot of trouble understanding because, you know, they, they hate Ted Cruz and they hate Donald Trump. And so they think that they have to be the same pe person. They're actually very different. Donald Trump's base in the primary was former Democrats, registered Democrats, self-identified moderates. And he did the best in, in, you know, the Republican Northeast. The correlation between Romney vote chair in the Republican primary and, uh, and Trump vote chair in 2016 was actually quite high. And uh, so this... This gets to an interesting point, which is that, you know, why did all of these voters, like, I think if you are uh, running on a, on a, like, I'll, sorry, I'll go in a different direction, which is we actually tested just to critique Hillary Clinton specifically, um, relitigating 2016 is always fun, that, you know, we tested one of the most popular Hillary Clinton ads, um, mirrors. And so the basic gist of the mirrors ad is that you have, bunch of little girls they're like staring in a mirror and then as they're staring like donald trump he says racist things sexist things makes fun of disabled people bad um and then the little girls like start to cry and you know we you know at my at my firm we do kind of rigorous a b testing where we have a control group that sees the ad and a treatment group doesn't you know we look at the causal effect on vote share and what we saw is that that ad actually decreased support overall. Um, and in fact, you know, we've seen about 20% of ads, you know, that Democrats create make people want to vote for Republicans. And that was one of them. And one of the big reasons why that happens, um, you know, like in this particular case, where that there were a lot of voters who were saying, you know, Donald Trump is talking about issues, he's talking about trade, he's talking about jobs, he's talking about immigration, and you're just trying to guilt trip me with your liberal bullshit. And these were people who voted for Obama who said that, you know, I think that's the important thing uh, to realize. Like if you, the source of all of our current structural problems, you know, in the Senate, in the Electoral College, really come from, I think, one statistic, which is if you look at white people without a college degree who make less than $25,000 a year, Barack Obama won that group by like two or three points. And Donald Trump won that group by 25 points. Uh, and those people, unfortunately, <laughs> disproportionately live in rural areas that are heavily represented by the Electoral College and the Senate. Um, and as long as we, you know, we currently exist in a political state where Democrats need 52% of the vote um, in order to win the Electoral College, and in the long run, probably more than that in the Senate. And this, that all started basically because of this electoral shift. And unless we switch back, um, there's not really, um, you know, we're going to constantly be in this situation where we have to win millions of votes um, just to break even. So another question I had about 2016 before we move on to more current stuff, because I just find your 2016 work so interesting, is uh, you argue that Clinton is kind of leftist uh, cliche that, oh, Democrats lost in 2016 because they abandoned the working man, you know, neoliberalism took, you know, the factory jobs and coal mines also closed, you know. Uh, and so, you know, they, they, these rural voters voted on economic issues. Um, you argue that primarily uh, they were racially motivated, really. They're motivated by racial resentment. Do I, is that correct? Is that a correct characterization? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, it is literally true. Um, you know, I, I think one, if you look at 
the standard demographics, you know, the most important thing that predicts shifts from 20, you know, 16 to from 2012 to 2016 is education. Um, and when you control for education, income completely goes away. It just happens to be that income and education are quite correlated with each other. Um, uh, but then if you control for what po political scientists call racial resentment, people get mad at you, um, you know, and you use this word, but, you know, basically asking questions like, you know, do you believe that there are a lot of white people who can't find jobs because black people are getting them instead? Or do you think that white people have enough power in this country? Or, you know, uh, there are, you know, people can argue about what these labels mean, what I, or, or whether those labels are racism. Uh, I have a position on that, but I think that, but it's true that once you adjust for these things, the education relationship disappears. And you need to be clear, there are, there are other metrics, um, you know, uh, that also where this is true. Psychometric openness to new experiences, uh, you know, social trust, uh, things like uh, attitudes toward corporal punishment. You know, all of these things and racial resentment is part of them are all fundamentally correlated with class in ways that I think um, are kind of uncomfortable. You know, I think people on the left like valorize, you know, the working class, you know, for, for all kinds of good reasons. Um, but the reality is that there are very strong, you know, the education, there are very strong cultural divides, you know, between educated people and less educated people uh, on attitudes like race or gender or, um, or immigration or how you're supposed to talk or even just whether or not you think the people around you can be trusted. And I think that historically, um, prior to 2016, uh, you know, politics used to be about whether or not you thought taxes should be increased. But, you know, what we saw in 2016 was that the correlation between views on universal health care and who you voted for went down considerably. Well, the correlation between, uh, you know, what you thought about immigration or social trust or racial resentment shot up. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's that's the real story is that, you know, this these materialist concerns, you know, whether or not, you know, things like factory jobs or, or you know, economic growth are kind of subsiding. And now we're fighting about these post materialist concerns, uh, you know, uh, and, and I think, you know, unfortunately, uh, that's breaking the electorate in a way that doesn't work very well for us. So I guess uh, sort of my argument, my question in relation to that, I mean, argument, I guess, is that um, I think uh, one sort of uh, discrepancy in how your ideas are packaged is that you say explicitly quite a number of times, uh, we need to support all these moderate policies to, uh, you know, appease uh, racist white voters. But of course, in the present day, appeasing racists um, isn't really a very popular strategy. And so, but I guess my question is, do you think your ideas, I mean, you, you, you try to, you know, you, you kind of say you know, over and over again, you know, oh, you know, it's not class. We can't, uh, you know, we can't, uh, you know, make this consistent with materialist concerns. But do you think, uh, you think attempts made by people like uh, Eric Kaufman, for instance, author of the White Shift of uh, trying to subsume, kind of trying to uh, validate these uh, ethnocultural and demographic concerns, you know, saying that, you know, Eric Kaufman makes the analogy that, um, you know, to say that rural whites in middle America have absolutely no, you know, right to say over democratic change, a little, a little bit like saying that uh, African-Americans in Harlem, um, you know, have no right to complain about gentrification or something like that. I, I, don't, I don't make that analogy. Kaufman makes that at one point. Um, do you think, uh, given the resounding success of the, uh, you know, the sailor strategy, um, 
you know, on the uh, um, in the 2016 election, do you think it's possible to look towards, try to assume this racial resentment to a broader theory of like elite noblesse oblige, declining elite noblesse oblige, Brazilianization in the uh, American Affairs article, Alex Hochuli, do you think it's reconcilable with a broader theory of race, such as pioneers like Kaufman, uh, Hochuli? No, I mean, it's, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, there's some, there's some real political science back to what you just said. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to maybe not get as deep, but what I will say is that uh, I think there's two important facts here. You know, the first is just a pragmatic fact, which is that generally speaking, uh, people agree with us. Uh, agree with Democrats. I keep saying us. I'm sorry. I'm sure there's a lot of McGill Trump voters out there. But, uh, you know, uh, they agree with Democrats on uh, basically a whole host of economic issues and some and some social issues, um, but disagree with us on a lot of issues involving race. You know, obviously, uh, people uh, and also racially charged issues, um, you know, things like defunding the police, things like affirmative action, uh, you know, uh, whenever cultural issues flare up, is this racist or that is, or that's racist? Like the reality of our political moment is that if Democrats cannot return to something much closer to 2012 performance among non-college whites, as Obama saw in 2012, we are going to be locked out of the Senate you know, basically for the rest of the decade. And it will really be quite bleak. It's totally conceivable that Republicans could have 60 Senate seats um, in 2025 and a trifecta. And I think that that result would be very bad um, for marginalized people across the US. Uh, and so I, I just, I wanna start with that. I know that doesn't exactly answer your question, but I think it is incumbent on us to figure out how to get these people to, to support us. And I think that the formula for doing that is for us to focus the public conversation and focus uh, our public facing communication on the parts of our agenda that we agree, that they agree with us on, which is mostly common sense, economic bread and butter issues. Um, I think there, it's easier to say than do. When that happens, there are gonna be hard choices. Uh, it'll mean that when there are, you know, when incidents happen that flare all of our tensions and make us very mad, it's gonna be on us to, it's very hard to say, this thing that is aggravating, we have to not talk about it. We have to focus, we have to change the conversation and pivot to healthcare. But the alternative to that, and I, I, it's really terrible. You know, we have this like utilitarian mugging is the alternative to that is literal fascists running the most powerful country in the world uh, and really harming a lot of people. So that's number one. Um, and I, I think that's my guiding star in a lot of these questions. But I think the second piece is just the reality uh, is, you know, there there's contrary, I think, to a lot of intellectual predictions. Uh, the reality is that here and in other countries around the world, we are seeing racial depolarization. You know, I over, you know, from 19, from 1990 to roughly, I'd say 2012, you know, racial polarization, the gap between white voters and non-white voters just kept growing and growing. And I personally, I thought this was gonna keep happening. I thought that we were gonna turn into quote unquote Brazil, though it turns out Brazil is no longer actually Brazil. Um, racial polarization in, in politics in uh, Brazil is actually uh, substantially smaller than the US now, which is very funny. Um, but, uh, 
you know, I, I thought that we were going to live in this world where, you know, you had a coalition of, you know, uh, white people, uh, you know, of, uh, of racist white people, uh, you know, and race and aid politics and all that stuff. And that hasn't happened. The reality is that in 2016, the white versus non-white gap decreased for the first time. In 2018, that trend continued. And now uh, in 2020, non-white voters uh, are now substantially to the right of where they were, um, you know, eight years ago. Uh, and all indications are that this trend is going to keep continuing. Uh, I think the best, it's very hard to predict things about the future, but I think all signs are really pointing to race being an increasingly less salient feature of American democracy. And that doesn't mean that racism is going to disappear or any of that, but it means that race is becoming less politically salient. The reality is you know, if you look at the racial demographics of the people who stormed on January 6th, there were a surprising number of non-web people of all races. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, politics is moving into a post-racial world. Now, to be clear, it isn't a good one. It turns out that, you know, fascism knows all colors and that you can have cultural conservatism um, uh, you know, in, in ways that, you know, and, and effective white supremacy without, you know, without actually everyone being white. But I think that trying to view politics as like uh, fundamentally a function of racial divides um, really leads you to miss a lot of very important things that have changed about American politics over the last, uh, over the last 10 years. Well, I guess my question is, um, current, and, and moving towards current politics, you were very, very uh, negative on uh, the impact of, uh, you know, some of the broad BLM style uh, approaches, defund the police, you know, um, on Democratic Party performance. And I'm, I am inclined to agree with you on that. But the one thing that I guess actually uh, someone I know who's very prominent in, in uh, political writing um, was very critical of you on is that um, he says that, um, you know, um, Democrats have actually uh, kind of defund very lefty type Democrats have actually done very well in certain elections, like the Buffalo mayoral election or the special election in New Mexico. And so there isn't really all that much in, 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 uh, evidence when you look at maybe not in, in the broader, you know, like uh, actual elections as opposed to focus groups that um, these kinds of slogans re are really, really hurt Democrats that much. I mean, what would you say to that argument? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would... First, I mean, obviously, my firm, you know, we've conducted, uh, you know, at this point, thousands of RCTs on millions of people. And yeah, I mean, defunding the police, is very bad. We're, we're actually very shortly going to release our first batch policy polling and, you know, defunding the police is out of the 200 policies we've tested, literally the second worst. Um, uh, but I do just, and, you know, we could, we could talk, we can go into the details, but I think just big picture. Um, it's important because I think people have um, inconsistent demands for rigor uh, is that I, I think stepping back, uh, what you choose to run on is very important. And I think that there's two different angles um, by which to analyze you know, public communication, particularly as it pertains to policies. The first is that talking about popular policies is better than talking about unpopular policies. Um, and I think that there's no way around the reality that defunding the police is incredibly unpopular. Um, there's been at this point, dozens of polls um, and you, you can go and see it's, it's basically, and this is in an environment where issue polls 
generally vastly overstate, you know, the popularity um, of progressive policies for a variety of technical reasons. And despite that, it's still something very clearly um, that people don't want that is repeatedly failing at the ballot box where it's coming up um, and that basically all politicians now are trying to avoid. Um, and I think that there isn't a good, there isn't like people will try to be like, oh, well, why didn't, you know, the polls go down or, you know, whatever. But, but I think like just big picture, uh, talking about popular things is better than talking about unpopular things and not talking about literally the most popular thing in your agenda. Uh, unpopular thing in your agenda is a good idea. I'd say the other thing, um, the other important angle is I think that policy popularity isn't everything. But another really important piece is, you know, what political scientists call issue salience, or which is related to issue ownership, which is that if you go through and you ask people, you know, what party do you trust more on healthcare, guns, or crime, or, you know, whatever, um, you'll see, and this is, you see a similar pattern in other countries around the world, uh, that basically people rate the center left highly on things like helping the middle class, education, healthcare, and they rate the center right highly on crime, immigration, to some extent, you know, the economy, you know, particularly scope of government or debt. Uh, and your job as a political party is to keep the, the public focused, keep the media focused, keep the public conversation focused on the parts of the issue spaces where people agree with you and not the pieces where they disagree with you. Uh, and, you know, from that perspective, the defund movement was a complete failure um, because it, it moved the conversation away from, you know, COVID and, but also to be clear, racial equality, which is, um, you know, racial equality is, is a big, um, a big issue where people trust Democrats to policing and crime um, and crime in particular, which is uh, an issue where people um, trust Republicans. Uh, and so I, I think that, you know, you don't need to be clear. I have personally done experiments, um, you know, suggested that defund messaging uh, is bad. If you actually look at the ANES, and, you know, I saw this in my data, but you see this in publicly available data too, that the single strongest predictor um, from an issue perspective of switching from Clinton to Trump is attitudes toward policing. Uh, but even without that individual evidence, which I do think is actually like pretty compelling, there's a really strong big picture perspective uh, point, uh, well, a big picture uh, case that this was a bad, you know, defund the police was very unpopular. And it was from the, it, it was in a place where Republicans have issue ownership. And so raising the salience of the issue was counterproductive and bad. I, I think, I think that's one of the, it's hard to make definitive statements in political science, but I think that this was one of them. Okay. So my next question is, I have only a few more questions left, but, uh, so how can more how can more cosmopolitan-minded elites connect with more average voters? What are some policies they can push concretely? And then secondly, you've talked quite a lot about uh, racial depolarization, which I was going to ask about, but now I won't because you pretty, pretty much answered that. But uh, there's also um, increased convergence between elites in the public and education. And you make the argument in, uh, I think, in New York Magazine that um, one of the reasons... Um, uh, for this actually populist backlash, it's actually a byproduct of that increased convergence because uh, elites don't feel they don't kind of they, they kind of don't feel the need to do this kind of Straussian noble lie messaging to the public because they see the public as more on equal footing almost. Um, so what? If, so the questions are: in the short term and the long term, in the short term, um, how can more cosmopolitan-minded elites uh, connect with average voters? What are some concrete policies? And then secondly. 
what are the implications of uh, increased educational convergence in the long term, which is a pattern we'll surely see, um, could that lead to a more liberal and less biased society overall? Yeah, well, first thing is I think, uh, you know, politics isn't as complicated as people make it out to be. You know, the key to winning is to talk about popular issues that people care about using language that people can understand. I think it's as simple as that. It's harder in practice to do for coalition reasons, but I, I think it's a good idea. Uh, and if you look at what some of the most popular policies are, I think it does cut across the ideological spectrum. You know, the three most popular policies, um, you know, that we've pulled, uh, most popular is prescription drug uh, price negotiation, which for Medicare, which moderates in Congress currently oppose, and I think that's very bad. Um, you know, you have the Loan Shark uh, Prevention Act, which is an AOC-sponsored bill uh, to cap credit card interest rates at 15%. Moderates also oppose that, and I think that's bad. And, you know, the last piece is, uh, and the third is, you know, adding dental uh, dental to, uh, to Medicare. I think that there are a lot of the most popular policies. You know, I don't think the left poses any of those things, but it's not the, it's not the stuff that gets them up in the morning. And I think the challenge... Uh, is that there's always going to be new shiny objects. Um, uh, you know, I think that there are a lot of incentives in our ecosystem to be edgy um, and focus on things that are bold and exciting. Uh, but the median voter is 50 years old, actually 52 years old. Um, as I, I always say 50, but it's higher this year. The population is getting older. Um, so as the median voter is 52 years old, doesn't have a college degree, has a mortgage, and really doesn't want bold, radical change. What you really want to do is sell people on dull as dirt, incremental policies. And you can actually, a lot of those policies can have really big impacts. If you pass the sum total of all of the, all of the policies that pulled above 55%, um, you would radically transform America. Uh, and I, I think it would, it would be amazing, um, but it requires ideological discipline and messaging discipline. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say pass popular policies in issue areas that people care about. People care a lot about healthcare. Um, they care a lot about jobs. The reality is that voters don't really care that much about climate change. And that brings you to another thing, which is it's fine to do things that are either unpopular or that voters don't care about, but don't brag about them. <laughs> you know, just like Donald Trump didn't go out there saying, when I get elected, I'm going to make it easy, easy to pollute rivers and cut taxes on the rich. He just did them, but he knew. He knew that wasn't the point. And I think it's very sad that we live in a world where you know, trying to reduce childhood poverty is seen the same way as voters as docs as, you know, dumping uh, toxic lead into rivers. But that is the reality that we're in. I think we have to be clear eyed about that and target our public facing communication effectively. Um, but just to talk, you know, about education polarization, you know, I, I think that uh, the country getting more educated um, is, is good, you know, for, for the world. Um, you know, I, I could talk an whole episode about education polarization. But I think if you look at the trends in the United States, you know, the country, and you know, basically everywhere else, so the US was a big outlier, so it's a bigger deal for us. You know, the country is getting uh, more educated, it is getting less white, it is getting more secular. Uh, and I think if you go and you look at that, like I'm sure that when millennials grow up or Zoomers grow up, they're not going to be as democratic or as liberal as they are now. Uh, but I think that there are a lot of secular forces that are pushing Democrat that are pushing the American public to the left, and by a lot of measures, um, the American public, at least immediately prior to Biden's election, now there's some thermostatic forces at play, was more left wing than it really has been at any point since the since the New Deal. Uh, the Democratic Party is obviously uh, you know the, the the flip side of this is that even though the median voter 
is substantially to the left of where they were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. The Democratic Party has responded to that by moving to the left. And the Republican Party, counterintuitively, has responded by moving toward the center on actual issues. Um, and I think this is really showcased. You know, they elevated Stefanik to replace Cheney, even though uh, Stefanik is actually, I, you know, most measures, the most ideologically moderate person in their caucus. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's a real danger. You know, this is one of the things the political scientists tell you, and I think it's true, which is that you can't look at complex systems in a vacuum. If, you know, we move to the, if we move, if the country moves to the left, but the Democrats also move to the left and Republicans don't, and instead, you know, focus on these non-salient authoritarian issues, we really could pose some, this could pose a real threat. And another big thing on this, you know, uh, that really scares me is that one of the things that's highly correlated with education um, is attitudes toward rule of thought, law, attitudes toward democracy. And, you know, we're increasingly moving toward a world where everyone who is enthusiastic about rule of law and democracy and all of these things is a Democrat now. And that wasn't true eight years ago. And that's very scary because the other side is going to win at some point. And if all of the good people are gone, then it's, that, mean, that means that, you know, only, only bad people will be in charge. And this is, I think, a broader point I'd like to make, which is, you know, I think fundamentally, you know, we're going to keep having this problem. Uh, of existential, of constant existential risk and terror, as long as we live in a world where all of the racist people vote for Republicans and all of the racist people vote, and all the non-racist people vote for Democrats. You know, the problem with that is that at some point there'll be a recession and the Republicans will win and have control again. And when they do, um, you know, if there are no good people left in the party, um, the results could really be very scary. And so I think this is just one of those things where it is on us uh, to change our coalition and change our messaging so that we can rebalance things closer to where they were 12 years ago. And I think that, that involves a lot of messaging discipline, symbolic moderation, and actual policy moderation. Uh, but I think that the alternative uh, is very scary. Um, you know, I personally do not want to be thrown out of a helicopter. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, the stakes here are very high. So uh, just close to wrapping up, um, what do you, so Initially, I think one of your more recent interviews, uh, around a little after the beginning of the Biden administration, you were a little bit bullish on Biden's chance, the, the Democratic Party's chances in, 20, in 2022 midterms. Um, and you thought that maybe the post-COVID, it might be something exceptional about the post-COVID uh, economic boom and, you know, kind of the post-Trump era that, you know, uh, makes it so uh, Democrats are, might be able to hold the, hold the House and the Senate in 2022. Um, I'd say personally, I don't know how you'd respond. This seems less likely now after the Afghanistan debacle and just after the events of the last, uh, you know, several weeks, some stuff coming out about Hunter Biden too. Um, do you still hold that uh, initial kind of positive uh, sort of hunch or do you think that the, the chances um, are evaporating for the Dems to hold uh, Congress in 2022? Obviously, you know, Biden's approval rating plummeting is, is bad. I do think it's really notable, though, that uh, basically all of the horse race polling, uh, whether it's for the Congress or whether it's an individual Senate races, really has mostly held up. Um, you know that there, uh, and so I, I think that's very interesting. I think you can make a reasonable argument that maybe Biden approval is a leading indicator for the generic House, but I think the reality is that after Afghanistan, a bunch of people changed their mind and liked Joe Biden less. Um, but still, 
support their House and Senate incumbents. Uh, you know, I would say that, you know, one of the challenges for Democrats to keep the House and Senate in 2022 is that even if they get 52% of the vote, which would be an incredible historic outcome, uh, you know, something that really has only been accomplished uh, once in 2002 since, since, uh, since 1994, um, then even if they do that, um, it is still something of a coin toss, uh, whether or not they will be able to maintain power because the system is very structurally biased against Democrats. Um, of course, as you, as you hint, um, you know, the political, there are political science reasons to think that maybe we're going to get 48%. Uh, but I do think that the case uh, for, like, I, I think it is really notable that there has been basically no movement or no decline um, in horse race polling in the House or Senate. Um, and that, makes it plausible that there won't be in the future. I, I, I'm not saying, you know, man, we're going to win in 2022. And in fact, I think I've been a big proponent for the idea that the baseline most likely outcome is, you know, that we see a substantial shift against Democrats and, um, and lose. But I, I do think there's a fairly substantial chance that, that ends up not being true. And, you know, I, I, I will also point to the California recall, which just happened, where, you know, Democrats, it seems, actually had pretty substantial turnout. Um, it seems like the 20, the California electorate was, if anything, maybe a little bit more democratic in terms of composition uh, than the 2020 general. Obviously, Virginia will tell us a lot. Um, this is one of those situations where there's an enormous amount of variance, and we'll have more information a couple months from now than we do now. Um, uh, but the flip side is that 2024 is very bleak. Um, and I have I have some upcoming public work that I'm going to be publishing shortly um, that I'm very excited about. Uh, about. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the 2024 map, uh, just the Senate map, uh, the, re the reality of the 2018 map is due to the historical after effects of Republicans creating a bunch of fake states, uh, you know, 100 years uh, ahead of the 1890s midterms. Uh, there's one class, uh, the class that was up in 2018 and will be up in 2024, that is substantially more rural and substantially more Obama Trumpy uh, than the rest of the country overall. And if you take the 20, Luckily, in 2018, it was a midterm. There are le there's less ticket splitting in midterms, and also it was a wave Democratic year. But if you held that election uh, in 2020, we would have lost something like six or seven seats. Uh, and so, you know, I think realistically, um, you know, we are walking into a buzzsaw unless there are big coalition and structural shifts uh, in how politics works in this country. And that terrifies me. I think that, you know, uh, we should take dramatic action before we have 42 Senate seats and not after. One thing we're seeing uh, lately in American politics is both the Democratic and Republican Party are uh, converging more with uh, European norms in a certain way. The Democrats are becoming a little bit more social kind of. Republicans are becoming a little bit more like the populist right-wing parties you see in Europe, like Hungary or Poland. Um, and part of that is just because there's a huge market for voters, always has been, who are economically, uh, you know, uh, left-wing because they're not super well-to-do and socially right-wing because they're rural or, or conservative. And, you know, Benjamin Disraeli plugged this market in national conservatism in the way back in the 1860s. Uh, you, you know, um, fascism obviously played a role in, in uh, you know, uh, targeting the, the, these kinds of people um, in, the, in the 30s. But I think one thing in the, in the states um, that's prevented that is that the influence of, uh, you know, moneyed interests in politics, for instance, um, you know, and the, the role of the, the corporate sphere in uh, 
playing such a huge role in Republican Party policy in the 70s and 80s. Um, now that um, the corporate world has increasingly uh, become democratically aligned, and Richard Hanania has done some very good research on this, what is stopping Republicans from adopting uh, economic policies like minimum wage or infrastructure and stuff like that that are more popular with uh, median voters while maintaining their cultural conservatism? I think this would be you know, the kind of true path towards the kind of urbanization of the right. But so far, there's still too much uh, enthrall to maybe donors or, you know, older kind of Reagan era slash neocon ideological concerns to do so. Yeah, so that's my question, because it would be bad for the Democrats, Republicans did that, because they're still not, they're still not pushing the most popular policies they could to galvanize their base. Yeah, you know, I, I'd say they are doing this in, in some very real respects. Um, you know, at 20, Donald Trump uh, in 2016, you know, a big part of his win, um, and you can see this in polling, uh, in the primary, he did, I think, three times better among Republicans who said that Social Security shouldn't be cut as people who didn't. Uh, and his, you know, promise not to cut entitlements. Uh, you know, it was something that a lot of people uh, brought up in, uh, you know, uh, in 2016, I think it played a big role in him winning. Uh, you know, it wasn't just the racism; it was the racism and and the and the economic moderation. Two great tastes that grow great together from an electability perspective. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, it's funny, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that played a big role, and I think that Trump backtracking from that, um, and you know, for the most part, um, you know, trying to repeal Obamacare, uh, passing a giant corporate tax cut. You know, I think that that played a, uh, a really big, a really large role in, you know, why things, uh, why things went the way that they did uh, in, uh, in 2018 and why there was so much backlash. And the flip side of that is I think that Trump uh, really was more liberal on fiscal policy in the year in 2020 than basically any president before him. And I think that ideological flexibility played a big role um, also in why, why he almost won re-election. So, you know, I, I think Republicans are doing this. And if you actually look and you compare what is it that Republicans are talking about now versus what Republicans were talking about in 2010, you'll see that Republicans are really very careful to keep a strong economic focus, sorry, a uh, cultural focus um, on all of their critiques. You know, uh, at this point, you know, in the cycle, you already saw, you know, people start to coalesce around Ryan care and all kinds of hideously unpopular policies. And Republicans have largely avoided, you know, anything involving policy content. Uh, and I think that that's very smart for them to do, even if I'm, I'm not thrilled about it. So yeah, I mean, I'd say that's the big risk is we're very lucky that up until this point, Republicans have relative to any other center, center, uh, center right party in, in, the, in the West really pursued a very ideologically extreme, um, uh, you know, platform uh, when it came to economic issues. Uh, and I think they did that you know, out of donor, donor pressure and personal beliefs and all kinds of things. Um, but I think that they are now realizing that if they do that less, they will win more elections. And I think that the only tool that we have to counter that is with, you know, they had their own ideological hobby horses um, that they would pursue at the, you know, at the expense of winning elections. And we do too. And I think that we have to be honest about what those things are and do it less than them so that we don't lose. Uh, I think it's as simple as that. So I, my, my last, one of my last questions is, um, so one thing I didn't mention to uh, listeners, but it's certainly one of the most interesting facts about you is that you're a self-described Marxist. 
And, but obviously your political uh, recommendations for the Democratic Party are anything but. you more like a 1990s DLC, you know, kind of, uh, kind of uh, liberal. Um, so how does Marxism influence your sort of shortest? How does, Mar- does, how does it play a role or does it? No, I, I mean, I, I, I think that, I think that uh, Marxism is a tradition. Uh, you know, I, I won't get too much into all the, all the internecine leftist stuff, but I do think that something that they've been very smart about um, is focusing on power and power structures. Uh, and I think a lot of my politics, uh, personally, you know, has been influenced, you know, less than less from Clinton or Blair, uh, though I, I think, you know, it's important to learn lessons. It's just this realization, you know, I think a lot of people let their history of socialism end in 1918, uh, you know, but I think the reality is that there were a lot of people, very committed socialists and social democrats, people who, you know, uh, had photos of Marx on their wall and saying the international, who spent the 20th century, uh, you know, in across Western Europe, trying to trying to pass social democratic legislation. And they proceeded to build, you know, some of the most equal prosperous societies that have ever existed, you know, in the history of mankind. Uh, but I think that you have to take very seriously and study what they did. Uh, you know, it wasn't that there was this great glorious moment where they came and created socialism and everything was lived happily ever after. You know, it actually, it happened very gradually. Um, and there were a lot of really tough political trade-offs and consequences, uh, you know, that happened at each step. And I think one of the lessons that you come out of is that actually it is very important to appeal to social conservatives and to cultural conservatives and meet them where they are. It is, it turns out that inflation and taxes are very real risks. Um, and it turns out that technocratic policy detail is also very important, that bribing interest groups and taking interest group politics seriously is very important. Um, and that uh, these aren't problems you can just wave away by being bold and inspiring. Um, and so I, I would say that, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been influenced really heavily um, by a series of, you know, uh, center, uh, center left politicians who identify as socialists. And I, I, I think that they're just as much legitimate out, outgrowths of Marx as, you know, the Soviet Union or China. Uh, and I believe that one pretty strongly. And, you know, I, I think that even though, uh, you know, Western Europe has a lot of flaws, uh, you know, we should, they've ended up in, in a pretty good place. And, you know, we should learn from, you know, their successes and their failures. I think a kind of stark example of this, and the sort of a, and you allude to it very vaguely in the New York uh, Magazine interview, but I, I know the history behind this, um, <laughs> is uh, Bruno Kreisky, you know, the Jewish socialist who led Austria from being a parochial Catholic society into a modern uh, social democracy, but he did so in large part by appeasing uh, Nazi sympathizers, basically. Um, and uh, that's a very stark example of where we're at as a country, too, uh, where we are. Um, and so that's just sort of my editorializing. Uh, my final, my, my final question before we wrap up is, uh, you were canceled back in, uh, I think, June or July 2020. You, uh, you now work at Open Labs. You used to work, I think, at Civis Analytics. I think I have that right. And you were fired for uh, tweeting out a very, very anodyne uh, study by Omar Wasar, uh, a black political scientist at Princeton, um, showing that um, peaceful protests are good for dams and violent protests are bad for dams, basically. Um, Do you have any perspective on cancel culture and what its impact on academic discourse is, if any? Yeah, you know what I'll I'll say? I mean, I I think that 
something I, I, I like to say about the academic discourse is just that they are just a subject to education polarization as everyone else. Uh, there was a great study uh, that looked at, you know, basically the party registration and the donation histories of professors. And it turned out that the vast majority of professors uh, who were who, who were registered Republicans had like still a donate, like if you look at Democratic donations versus Republican donations, Republic, registered Republican professors donate more to Democratic campaigns than Republican campaigns. And the reason for that is that voter registration is like a lagging indicator. You only change your registration when you move. And so, you know, these are, there's a giant mass of people in the academies who were Republicans 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you know, people like Greg Mankiw or whatever, who now uh, identify as Democrats. And, you know, this is part of a broader trend of education polarization that, you know, the most educated people have become much, much more left wing, um, you know, than they were five years ago or 10 years ago. And, you know, Matthew Iglesias likes to talk a little bit about a bell curve. Um, I think it's good overall that the country has moved to the left. Um, but the flip side is that, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you have a shift to the left, that will cause, you know, that, that will increase the percentage of people who have truly extreme views. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that there are, at some point, um, there, it is important to be cognizant of, you know, when you shift a little bit too far from where society is, and, and there, there are some sustainability issues there. Um, but yeah, I, all I would say um, is, you know, when it comes to cancel culture and all of that, is that I think it's, it's really, I, I'm not, you know, one of those people who's like, ah, you know, academic freedom, it's the most important thing in the world. But I will say that I've heard from multiple folks that, you know, during the height of the George Floyd protests, um, you know, and this is from, multi I've heard this from multiple firms, the Democratic pollsters were trying to pull what to say, and they were trying to figure out, you know, what do voters think about riots or whatever, and they couldn't, because there were staff who were saying that, you know, including the words riot in a survey, you know, was itself perpetuating, you know, uh, violence, and, you know, with constituted anti-blackness. Um, and, and so I do really worry, um, you know, there is, uh, when it comes to my industry, it is our job to uh, grapple is to give, you know, the Democratic Party good strategic advice. And, you know, we get paid by donors. Um, you know, there are a bunch of, you know, a bunch of people who are sending us their money and their salaries so that we can win elections and the stakes are very high. And, you know, I, I think that if you make it hard to talk about a wide swath of things, then that's going to degrade decision-making quality around a lot of those things. Uh, and, you know, to go back to what I said earlier, keeping the Republicans out of power is very important. I think it is the single most important thing. <laughs> and I think that if you asked, you know, the working, you know, the working class people who are going to be impacted if Medicaid gets cut or if it becomes harder to vote, I think most of these people would agree. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's why I think it is important. You know, this is part of messaging restraint. Um, you know, it's important to be honest with ourselves about what's popular and what's not. And it's important for us to make good decisions. What are three steps, three concrete steps, uh, Democrats uh, can take to moderate their views? Three policies, for instance. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say the reconciliation package is coming up, focus on the most popular things, uh, prescription drugs, giving things to old people. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think that as we go through our policy agenda, doing the popular things and not the unpopular things, I, I, I think that that's, 
that's as simple as you can. That, that's the most important thing. That's what you can fix tomorrow. I think in the longer term, there is a real problem that every single person in our party who's, or who speaks on our behalf is either a highly educated Democratic uh, party official or an expert. And I think that the reality is that working class voters don't like either of those two groups. Uh, we need more genuinely working class voices in our party. And uh, I, I think that, you know, it's that's something that the left claims that they would agree with. Um, but I think that the practice and practice doing it, um, you know, is going to poses uh, unpleasant trade-offs that people might not like. Uh, but I think that, you know, in order for us to moderate, we need to, you know, moderate on issues. But that doesn't necessarily mean less, you know, less government or less need or, or less needy things. There's a wide variety of policies that are that are super popular that would help a lot of marginalized people. But we have to rhetorically focus on them and not talk about things um, that are less important and less central. It's, it is a bad idea, for example, to derail an infrastructure bill with uh, discussion around Iron Dome funding. And so I, I think that's that's really the, the point. Um, you know, it's not going to be one single thing. It's that every single day, there are centripetal forces that push us to make politics about the things that we care about, as opposed to the things that working class people care about. We need to fight those forces, um, because if we don't, then fascists take over the country and, you know, do terrible things. It's as simple as that. Wonderful having you on. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I hope your listeners enjoy it. Take care. Thanks. That was David Shore on MIR Meets Podcast.